Let me just say before I read the scriptures that um, what I'd like to share today is something I shared with our congregation a couple months ago and uh, born out of something of um, what's happening in our life at, at the moment, but, but also in a larger context, um, something that I think all Christians deal with throughout their entire life. And um, to some degree, I, I think we can always say this, uh, Pastor Chuck, as we preach, that we know wherever we speak, we've either done study and or just our life experience has influenced uh, where we want to uh, uh, look into the word. And that's kind of kind of the, the situation today, is, uh, as I'm sure you'll soon uh, see and, uh, and know, some of you know our current situation. So kind of overarching truths today from Scripture uh, let me, I'm going to read two scriptures that will be the foundation of, of the sermon today. The first one is in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8 and 9. Now, Isaiah 55, it, the context is salvation. And, and the context is um, the salvation of lost sinners. But, but what God is saying here in verse 8 and 9 is a truth that is um, very dominant throughout the scriptures in every situation. Isaiah 55 and verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher, that's the word means exalted. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. And then a parallel passage in Romans chapter 11. And in Romans chapter 11, Paul is, is recounting an amazement that the Gentiles are going to be grafted in to God's covenant people, to the covenant of grace, the gospel. And in Romans chapter 11, beginning at verse 33, again, he recounts an overarching truth that is seen throughout the scriptures as we consider God. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or... Who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again? For of him, and through him, and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. The title of the message this morning is The Question with No Easy Answer. Subtitle, I... I Oftentimes give subtitles that I don't mention, but I'm going to mention the subtitle today. The subtitle is Grace Outside My Window, which I will talk about later. But the question with no easy answer, the question that all of us ask on our Christian pilgrimage, two-word two question, why God? Or, God, what are you doing? God's thoughts, God's ways in our personal individual life, all of the circumstances we find ourselves in, 
the, the saints in Scripture, which we'll see shortly, but all of these questions, why God, what are you doing? I think they really boil down. Well, we have to stand back and say there's no easy answer. There are some generic categories that we'll mention briefly by way of introduction. But really, there's, there's no easy answer. And, and today, I'd like to look at why there is no easy answer. I'm not going to answer your question, why God did you do this or why did you do that? Each one of us comes from a different personal history, a different church history, a different way that we were brought into the kingdom of God, um, circumstances that could be unpleasant in our life, uh, issues that seem contrary to, to what God, we would think he would do, something that according to our spiritual reasoning we would expect God to do or not do. Um, and when things are unpleasant or when we're going through these type of afflictions or growth periods, I think we ask that question, why God? Some of you know our, our grandson Finnegan spent eight weeks at Stanford, premier hospital, and they were unable to control his seizures. Isla Rose, who's on essentially life support and will be for a while, um, evidently, there's over 11 million children with special medical needs in America alone that require special attention. God, God, why is that? Why was my loved one involved in a car accident through no fault of their own? Why do I have this debilitating illness? Why is my financial situation so difficult? Why do I have the worst neighbors on the planet living next to me? <laughs> Why is my work situation trying? You know, God, I'm trying to be faithful. I trust in you. I'm, I'm walking in your ways. I'm, I'm, I'm ministering here. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. But like Job of old, when he said, I'm being poured from cup to cup. God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth. Now that's, that's like an infinite distance, right? Higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. And my judgments are unsearchable. You cannot even search them out. But if you could, you're not going to understand them. His ways are past finding out. So the question that I'm going to suggest we all ask, why God? Typically, if you were in a church situation or with some brethren, they're going to give you three answers. And I'm just, just by way of review because we're not going to look at these answers. But three categories when we have negative or unpleasant things happen to the believer. Why God? Well, that's easy. We know that all things work together for good. To them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose, for whom he did foreknow, he did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. Can we have lunch now? Right? It's, it's given as a cavalier answer almost when, when there's a lot in that idea that God is conforming us to the image of his son and all things, all these moving pieces in a very non-linear function, all these moving pieces are, are going into what God is doing in our life. Peter said the trial of our faith being much more precious than that of gold that perishes, though it's tried with fire, 
Here Peter, with the same idea of this refining process, Peter brings the fire and the gold together. And I know you've heard of this illustration before, but, but when the goldsmith was refining the gold and burning the dross off, when, when he could see his face in that molten gold, then he knew all the imperfections were out. And this is not what God is doing in our life, getting out all that imperfection so that he can see his face, as it were, his image in our life. Yeah, God is working all things to our good. That's, that's, he's refining us. He's honing us. That's the first category. Second category is God does these type of things in our life to get glory for himself. Remember that, that, that man who was born blind in John chapter 9, and the disciples asked, these are disciples, followers of God, followers of Christ, and they asked the Lord, Master, who did sin? Did he sin or did his parents sin so that he would be born blind? And Jesus answered and said, Neither has this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. Interesting statement. This man hasn't sinned nor have his parents sinned. Well, they were sinners, right? They did sin. But Jesus is saying their sin, their personal sin is not the cause for this to happen to this man who was born blind. It's so that God could manifest his works. The same idea in John 11, the raising of Lazarus. I mean, the ultimate, why did Lazarus die? Jesus said, it's for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't here. So I could raise him from the dead to reinforce your faith about the resurrection. God's glory. It's not because of this sin or that sin. I've met Christians who automatically think, I must be sinning for God to punish me. If God punished us for our sin, there'd be nobody left standing, right? God chastens us. Sometimes God will correct us. But but this idea of, of, of God just deciding almost capriciously, I'm going to have this man born, this young kid born blind because of parents' sin. Is that, is that your understanding of God? No. The third, again, as I mentioned, chastisement or correction. Uh, Hebrews 11, whom the Lord loves, he chasteneth, and he scourgeth every son whom he receives. All those three categories, just by way of introduction, those are all true. But, but I want to this morning come from a different direction and just have, as it were, just a collection of a few thoughts to think about why we go through situations that cause us to ask, why God? And just to be reminded, there's no easy answer. I, I want an easy answer, right? A, B, C, X, Y, Z. This is why something is in my life, and if there's something I can do to correct it, or, you know, I want to do that. But there's no easy answer to that question. So five things First of all, we're going to look at the incomprehensibility and the knowability of God. That's going to lay a doctrinal foundation. Secondly, we'll look briefly to scriptures at others who've asked this question, why God? Thirdly, we're going to very briefly look at the case of Job. Fourthly, we're going to look at the wrong question. So it turns out this question has morphed into a slightly different question today that I'm sure you've heard. And we want to just look at that briefly. And then fifthly, would like to understand, you know, where do we go from here? So first of all, just by way of a doctrinal foundation, the incomprehensibility and the knowability of God. This, this is a doctrinal foundational thing. And the idea, number one, is 
God is incomprehensible. In that Isaiah passage that is talking about salvation, what God is saying, if you look at the original language, the ways of man, the thoughts of man, are, are in one sense, and there's this ethical slant to the words, but they're unrighteous, this lawlessness. But God is entirely different. God is perfectly righteous. He is perfectly holy. This is the great distinction when God is saying that his thoughts and his ways are entirely different than ours, higher than the heaven. But, but God, God is incomprehensible. Theological, theologians that use this term basically are saying you cannot comprehend God the way God comprehends himself. It's not to say God is unknowable, but it's to say none of us can, can, can comprehend God exhaustively. It is impossible to know God and his ways and his thoughts and his attributes and his characteristics. It is impossible to know God as he knows himself. He is infinite. We are finite. He <coughs> always existed. We were created. He is high and lifted up. We're creatures of the dust. A saying, I'm sure you've heard it. There is one God, and you're not him. Mm-hmm. Incomprehensible God includes not just God himself, but his ways, how he administers the universe, his plan for your life. We are finite. Our minds are always coming from that finite perspective, that fallen perspective, Genesis 3. We live and move and have our being on a finite plane, a fallen plane regenerated by grace, but, but that's where we came from. God is, has his, lives and moves and has his being in infinity, eternality, that majestic eternal glory. And so when you think about God and, and his attributes, and his characteristics, those that he doesn't communicate, like the fact that he is, he is sovereign, he is everywhere present, we begin to understand it's difficult to, to apprehend God. And the same goes for those communicable attributes. You know, we, we have the love of God, and we understand mercy and holiness that he's working in us, and all these, these other things, we still cannot comprehend it. And then, when you think about a doctrine that you may know, any doctrine that you, you are very set on, you understand it, you could argue it from scriptures, you don't even know that in a comprehensive way, the way God does. God, God is infinite. He's incomprehensible. Yet, the Bible says you can know God. There is this knowability that God has that he shares by way of revelation to to a people. Three forms of revelation I'm sure you are aware of. Special revelation, that is the word of God. Natural revelation, that is creation. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. What is known? even his eternal power and Godhead. So they are without excuse. Who, who are the they? It's the unbeliever. 
The unbeliever could be convinced about the Godhead and the power of God. And Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. Day unto day utter speech. Night unto night shows knowledge. And there's no place around the entire globe where they have not gone, where they cannot be heard. Creation is a universal language. We have special revelation, the word of God, natural revelation, creation. We can know something of God if we study creation. And of course, thirdly, he's spoken to us by his son. God in these last days has spoken to us by his son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things and by whom also he made the worlds. There's that creatorship of God. Goes on to say, who being the brightness of God's glory and the express image of his person. Isn't this what Jesus told Thomas? Thomas, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We have this idea that God reveals himself in these parcels, these segments, these these niches that we, in our minds, sew together to try to make this overall picture of God, but we have little fragments of him. So that we have to remember, though he's incomprehensible, yet we can know something about him. If you, if you were to tell somebody on the street, <coughs> did you know that God is incomprehensible, yet you can know him? They would say, you're, you're crazy. We would say Christianity is a very intelligent religion. When, when you understand how, how God, God has hidden some things, but he's revealed other things. When you understand there's this mysterious, infinite dimension between us and God. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong unto the Lord, our God. But those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So... We have to remember when we ask that question, why God? Be reminded that, oh, by the way, God is incomprehensible. I can know something. There is this knowability. But oftentimes the reason there's no easy answer to our question is because of this this continuum. On one hand, God is incomprehensible. On the other hand, he's knowable. And we are in the middle Eh, Not really. We're really biased to the incomprehensibility of God, right? We thank God that he has given to us some knowledge, some revelation, even though his ways are far beyond us, his judgments are unsearchable, his ways are past finding out. That's a doctrinal basis as we go forward. Secondly, others in the scripture who have asked this question Why God? We are in good company, I think. We need not beat ourselves up when when we ask this question because God's people down through the ages have asked the same question. We'll look at just a few. These are saints that we'll look at. Now, now some people ask the question from a very bad spot. Ezekiel, you can look at this later, but Ezekiel 18 and Ezekiel 33 They asked why God, but they brought forth evidence and they had already judged God that his ways were not equal. God, why are your ways not equal? 
And there was this, this evidence that was supposedly God's doing, but it was their circumstances that they brought to this, to this bar to ask God why. And they'd already judged God. God is being wrong in that situation. Why God? How about Moses? One of the initial meetings that Moses had with Pharaoh, Pharaoh decided that the people had way too much time on their hand to want to go to worship God into the desert. And as you recall, they were under a, a slavery and they had to make bricks. And so on this occasion in chapter five, Pharaoh said, the people now have to make bricks without straw. So now they have to go find their own straw. And, and every subsequent day, they have to go farther to find the straw. And that this, the tale of bricks, that is the quantity, the amount, was the same. So their slavery was now compounded by a lot more difficult uh, uh, circumstance that Pharaoh had put on them. And the scripture says, and they, that is the Israelites, met Moses and Aaron, who had just stood. They had just come forth from Pharaoh, and they stood in the way. So, so now these Israelites, some of them, got in Moses' face, and Aaron's face. And they said this, the Lord look upon you and judge, because you have made our savor to be abhorred in the eyes of Pharaoh, and in the eyes of his servants, servants to put a sword in their hand to slay us. Basically, they said, because of you, we're going to die. They're going to kill us. We can't survive under this heavy load that now is on top of us because you're going into Pharaoh. What is Moses? Moses asked God a question. He asked God two questions. Moses returned unto the Lord and he said, number one, Lord, why have you so evilly entreated this people? And number two, why hast thou sent me? God, why are these circumstances evil, troubling, a difficult problem? And why am I in the mix? Why am I here? And then he brings forth in the next verse evidence. For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in thy name, he has only done evil to thy people. Neither hast thou delivered thy people at all. Oh, the promise was God was going to give deliverance. And now it's worse than when Moses and Aaron started. As the events unfold, they seem to be opposed to God's revealed will, counterintuitive to the nature of God. The evidence seemed to vindicate Moses. And as Moses asks these questions, we can almost fill in the answers. But there's no easy answer. Because as you know the story, God's plan was not to provide a quick solution. God is, was going to say, basically, I will let the people go, but not today. And I've heard the groanings, Moses. I've heard them for 400 plus years, long before you came on the scene. And he says, and then he goes on to say, Moses... I am Jehovah. Moses is one God and it ain't you. And you're jumping the gun to what God wants to do. Moses goes on to ask the same type of question throughout the entire Exodus. God, why? Or what are you doing? Or why did this not happen and this did happen? And many of those situations 
There's no two-dimensional linear answer because God has all these moving pieces. He's doing a lot in the midst of all of the Israelites and he's doing something that's going to be recorded in his word for the benefit of Christians around the world throughout all of time. Gideon. Gideon asked the question this way in Judges 6 and verse 13. If the Lord is with us, well, there's a lot there. If the Lord is with us, if the Lord is with us, why has all of this befallen us? And where are the miracles that our fathers told us of, saying, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? Here's his conclusion. But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. In the midst of this trial, he said, God is far from me. God is far from us, his people. Of course, there's always a backstory. The Israelites had, had sinned grievously against God. And so this is one of the situations where God had delivered them into the hands of the Midianites, one of their enemies. And God even said this is what he was going to do. And it was going to be for seven years. And Israel was greatly impoverished. And it was a difficult trial and affliction for this time period. And Gideon was threshing wheat by the wine press. He was hiding it because the Midianites would steal it after he did all the work. And this angel of the Lord comes to him and it says, Hail thou mighty man of valor, this guy who's hiding. And this is when Gideon said, If the Lord is with us, the implication is he's not with us, but if, he, if God is with us, why are these troubles in my life? Why, why are these problems? And in the past, he did things. He did miracles. But now the Lord has forsaken us. And then the Lord says, go in your might and you shall save Israel from the Midianites. I have sent you. That wasn't the answer he was looking for. His, his whole thing was, God, what are you doing? And he gets the answer. Gideon, you're the answer to the problem. And Gideon's like, not me. And if you know Gideon's story, I mean, this is the most improbable, unforeseen way that God is going to work out the deliverance of his people. And Gideon, as you know, goes along the way with a little bit more doubts and questions uh, until God finally brings about this deliverance in such a way that it reminds us of Paul. Paul says, when I am weak, then I am strong. God, why? What are you doing here, God? And the answer, again, there's no easy answer because God is going to do several things on several fronts. Habakkuk, one of my favorite prophets of the Old Testament. The ancient prophet Habakkuk asked five questions in that book. And these questions are common to every one of you. Listen to these questions. I can give you the references later. Number one, God, where are you when I need you? Number two, God, why do bad things happen to good people? Number three, why do good things happen to bad people? Number four, the most important question, I think, will I make it through this trial? And number five, God, why are you acting in a way that seems contrary to your spiritual nature? Those questions that Habakkuk asks are really profound questions and, and very deep. 
And he's not going to get an answer that's going to, uh, you know, fill in the blank and satisfy his life. And I would say that God's answer to Habakkuk throughout that book are incomplete and they're fragments and, and they're hints. But God is able to get Habakkuk into the place where God wants him at the very end. Habakkuk's faith is triumphant. It's been tried and it's triumphant. And he ends that book with a temple song. He says, though the fig tree will not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vine. The labor of the olive shall fail. There'll be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord is my God. He will make my feet like hinds feet. And I will walk upon my high places. He did not get the answer to his questions. Deep questions, profound questions. But he got enough to know that he, he could have a settled faith and trust God. Others have asked the question. The thing to be reminded of is there's always these many moving pieces that God is, is working in our life. And saints of old have asked this question. And again, they too were in between the incomprehensibility of God and the knowability of God. But we need not chastise ourselves if we ask the question, why God? Oh, I must have little, little faith to ask God why. No, many saints of great stature have asked that question too. Thirdly, the case of Job. Okay, so, so Job, as we know, I'm only going to briefly touch on just three thoughts because Job is voluminous. There's so much there. Of course, you know, Job went through this most significant trial that has no parallel in the scriptures as far as human suffering. He lost his family. He lost his wealth. He lost, I'm going to say he lost his wife the way Adam lost his wife. He lost his health. His health was so bad that, that he was reduced to such a condition that when his friends came to see him, Scripture says they did not even recognize him. He was reduced to, to, the, to just the, the, the smallest, uh, weakest, most um, in-pain individual that a person could be. And through most of the book, from chapter 3 to chapter 38, Job is searching for answers. He's searching for answers. If God is a good God, if God is benevolent, why is there suffering? I'm going to come back to that question in a minute. Of course, Job's friends have the answer, right? Oh, it's a secret sin, Job. You've sinned against God, so he's brought calamity. He has brought catastrophic ruin in a day into your life because of some secret sin. And as you know, God has to correct them. Beginning in chapter 38 through chapter 41, God asks Job questions. 84, I counted 84 questions that God now asks Job. And then a couple more in chapter 42. And I want to focus on just three of the thoughts that God brings into Job's life to have him think about. 
Again, Job is going through the, the severest of trials for an extended period of time, and he's asking God why. The first thought comes from chapter 38 and verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, and he said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee and answer thou me. Okay, here's the question that God is going to ask Job. Where was thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare it now, if thou hast understanding. Where was thou when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, Job. Where were you? God is showing Job that God is the creator. God in eternity past created the world simply by the word of his power. Now think about this. Something to consider when we go through deep waters. There's 42 chapters in the book of Job. Job does not appear until the end of chapter 1. Really chapter 2 we understand this man Job. And from chapter 2 on and God's plan for the allowance of these trials and this testing to occur, we see what he goes through. But, but Job, on this timeline, Job does not show up until the end of chapter 1, beginning of chapter 2. And God says, where were you when I created the foundations of the earth? Let me rephrase that question. Job, where were you in eternity past when I architected your life? Where were you when I planned out your life from eternity past? When I orchestrated sovereignly when you would be born, who your friends would be, who you would marry if you have a spouse, when you would become born again, where you lived geographically, all of those things I was going to do in your life so that you could be partakers of the saints of the, in the inheritance of life, to be born again. Where were you when I laid out your life's path? When things would come into your life that I, I protected you from, I hedged you in from, but other things came into your life that I would use to accomplish my purposes. Job, where were you? Where were we? when God planned our life in eternity past. When God, according to his wisdom, according to his power and for his purposes that he had, decided certain things would be this way in our life and other things in somebody else's life and still other things in somebody else's life. A lot of times when trials and afflictions come into our life, they, they almost seem to be like a shooting gallery, you know, where it just pops up and then, then we try to shoot it down and that pops up. Our life was planned in eternity past. I mean, we, we're talking about God's permissive will and God's perfect will, but, but I'm talking about major events in our life that God sovereignly planned for us. So that first thought we need to think about why there's no easy answer you know, we're not robots, but, but the majority, the main tenor of our life, God planned. He created us. 
Second thought comes from Job chapter 40, verse 6 through 14. It's something of a challenge to Job. The Lord answered Job and said in chapter 40, in verse 1, Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall he that contendeth with the Almighty instruct him? He that reproveth God, let him answer it. Job goes on to say in verse 4, I am vile, what shall I answer thee? I will lay my hand upon my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. And God reinforces this, and this is what he says in verse 8. Wilt thou also disannul my judgment? Wilt thou condemn me so that you can be righteous? Job, you are trying to bring me down to a place where you can be elevated in my place. So you can be right and I can be wrong. Will you disannul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be righteous? God is here trying to to tell Job that he's trying to maintain his own righteousness. And he's got these assumptions that are totally wrong. Job has this assumption that if he could govern his world, he could govern his world better than God could. How often have we said this? Well, if I was in charge, I would do this. I would do the other thing. He wants to disannul divine judgment. Secondly, he's tr- God is trying to get Job to understand, not only do you not have the wisdom to, to architect your own life, but number two, you don't have the power. You don't have the power over your own life, let alone all these other moving pieces that are part a sum of the whole. We have to reflect upon our life. I mean, could you run your own life better than God? Well, we know the textbook answer is no, but okay, but what about the real answer? Could you? I don't even know how many cups of coffee I had this morning. Let alone try to run my life in a way that will get me to the finish line of heaven. And again, there's something, it's kind of encroaching on that Ezekiel 18, Ezekiel 33 area where where those people were trying to say, God, your way is not fair. Uh, and, and, And God has to reprove them. And Job is kind of getting into that that area. No easy answer, Job. So God's first thought to Job is, Job, I created your life before you even came on the scene. So where were you when I was doing that? And the implication is, do you know why I'm going to do this? Do you understand perfectly what I'm going to get at the end? Job doesn't. He wasn't there. The second thoughts God has asked him to consider about is, don't be careful that you don't charge God foolishly. Remember, Job, you're of the dust of the earth, and I'm eternal God. And at least in that that's context, it's a beautiful thing because Job submits to God. Job gets it. Job says, I'm vile. I, I heard of you with the hearing of my ear. Now my eyes seeth thee. I abhor myself and I repent in dust and ashes. I am vile. I'm small. I'm mean. I'm of no account, God. He finally understands man's littleness, God's greatness. He admits his error. Note, God doesn't blast him for asking a question. 
God knows of what we've been made of. He knows. How many questions do you think went up to, has gone up to God throughout all of time? Why God? I mean, billions? Even from unbelievers? The third answer to Job, or third thought, is in chapter 42 and verse 12. So the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than the beginning. Job, my plan all along is to bless you abundantly at the end of all this. Job, there's no easy answer because I'm going to use you as a picture of Christ in the book of Job, undergoing tremendous suffering. Job, there's no easy answer because I'm going to use you as a pattern for suffering Christians down through time who can read this and understand that they can get through it. Job, I'm going to use you to reprove Satan who said the only reason that Job is following you, God, is because you're hedging him in and protecting him. And Job, you're going to be, you're going to, going to show that I, my keeping power of you and your trust in me is for all of eternity. Job, there's a ton of reasons why you're going through this. There's no easy answer. But Job, here's just a few thoughts. And by the way, I'm going to bless your latter end more than the beginning. Fourthly, the wrong question. The question why God has no easy answer because, again, our knowability of God is tempered with his incomprehensibility. This question, others have asked it, and we find out that God is, has lots of things happening at once. Like Job, we don't have enough knowledge. But this question, why God, has morphed into a different question today. And I know you've heard the question. And it goes something like this. If God is God, and if he's a good God, and he's a benevolent God, he's an all-powerful God. If God is God, then why is there suffering? Why is there pain? Why is there affliction? I've had people ask me this question. If God is good... If he's benevolent, if he's merciful, if he's a good God, and I agree with that, he is a good God. And if God is all-powerful, he's sovereign, he's majestic, I agree with that, Daniel 4. If God is a good God, why does he allow suffering? Why is there pain? So, So what's wrong with that question? Why is that a flawed question? Why is that a false question? If God is good... And all-powerful, why does he allow suffering? Well, it's a flawed question but it, because it only gives God two options, right? Two, only two options for God. Either God is a good God, but he's powerless to stop suffering. Yeah, that's wrong. Or the other alternative is God has the power to stop suffering, but he's not a good God because he's allowing it. Wrong. This is a false question because it only gives God two options. The real question that has to be asked is this. Since God is good and benevolent and merciful, since God is a good God and he's powerful, he's sovereign, he has the power to do something, since God is a good God, has he done anything to ever stop the suffering? And the answer is yes. 
He already has. He sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world to be the savior of the world to fix the sin problem, to be the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, to take our pain, our afflictions, our griefs, our sorrows upon himself. He sent his son to suffer in that place where we could never suffer, that ultimate suffering. He came to fix the death problem. He came to fix a host of other issues so that whoever puts their trust in him will be like Job, who has his latter end blessed more than his beginning. When we were looking at that question, why God, and we were looking at others in the Bible who asked that question, did anybody else come to mind? How about the Lord Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross who asked the question, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now listen to this. You are going to have many why God questions in your life that you will have no answer for. Here is a why God question that the Son of Man asked. And you have the answer for that one. And if you have the answer for that one, all is well. Why was he forsaken upon the cross? For salvation, for redemption, to save us. I've made that very simple because... We can't understand that question either, but but you get what I'm saying. Here is the Son of God, the Son of Man, who asks that question, why hast thou forsaken me? And you have the answer. Ultimately and finally, the question, the only logical question that we can ask, given God is given God is a good God, all-powerful, sovereign, love of, loving, merciful. And given that there are sufferings and afflictions and pain and everything in the world negative, and we're kind of in the midst of our life going through that, has God done any, will God do anything to fix it? He has. And one day, it'll, everything will be wrapped up and you'll really see that he really did fix that issue. And for all of eternity, it's fixed. It won't be broken again. Lastly, so, so what do we do? How do we, how do we go through this life with this question? On one hand, it's okay to ask the question, why God? We want to be careful. We don't want to be like Eve in the Garden of Eden who just wanted more knowledge for knowledge's sake. I want to be like God, knowing good and evil. I want to know everything. Our experiences our struggles, God's plan in our life, all of these things. Sometimes God's plan isn't what we want in our hearts. Nobody likes to go through difficulties. It's hard to understand sometimes. We know God has a reason. Sometimes it's better to ask the questions like, God, what does this situation teach me about yourself? Or what does it teach me about myself? Or what good can come out of it? What testimony will come out of it? 
And, and it, this acknowledgement, this understanding that there's no easy answer. But the verse that I always like to go to, moving forward, understanding there's no, I'll be, I will be asking this question until the day I die probably, and there's never going to be an easy answer. But First Peter chapter 4 and verse 19, I think is a capstone verse for these issues. 1 Peter 4 and verse 19. Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. If we suffer according to the will of God, this is a situation where there's suffering for the Christianity but, but again, if we suffer according to the will of God in, in any sphere, we are to commit, that is, de- deliberately lay down our life with that trust. Remember Christ when he gave up the ghost. Into thy hands I commit my spirit. We, we, we lay it down before him. The keeping of our souls, that's not a word that means a disembodied spirit. Uh, sometimes it can mean that, but in the New Testament, it includes body, soul, and spirit. The whole person. And some of our afflictions that are trials affect us physically. And even if they're only a soul issue or a spirit issue, you know that emotional or anxiety or stress type things can affect our physical body as well. Commit our entire life to him in well-doing, continuing on as unto a faithful Creator. This gets back to the issue with Job. Job, where were you when I created your life? I architected your life in eternity past. He's a faithful creator. In the, in the Greek language, this, this faithful creator is in the emphatic position. To a faithful creator, commit your soul. Continue in well-doing. To a faithful creator, remember him. This creator, we, we looked at the Romans passage. Even to the unbeliever, his eternal power and Godhead is manifest. Commit unto him, this faithful creator. And continue on, persevere. Continue to, to do righteousness. While you're going through this affliction, this trial, continue to do righteousness. Cultivate the fruits of grace. Walk with him, submit to him, persevere, continue, keep on keeping on. So, so that's what I wanted to share this morning. A couple of thoughts as to why this question, why God, why there typically is no easy answer. Number one, we are in between the incomprehensibility and the knowability of God, biased heavily towards the incomprehensibility of God. Secondly, we looked at others who have asked this question. We're in the same boat as they are. They brought forth evidence to God, but remember, their evidence was not complete. And those godly ones who asked that question did it very carefully, considering themselves. (coughs) We looked at the case of Job. Just three of the thoughts that God gave Job as Job was asking this question. Where were you when I architected your life? Job, you could not order your life any better, nor do you have the power to do it, even if if you could. And number three, I want to bless you, but I'm going to bless you at the end. 
and not the beginning. We looked at how this question has been morphed into a a question that's a flawed question, a false question. God has done something. And then this verse in Peter, commit your souls unto a faithful creator. He is faithful. He is our creator. Let me close by explaining my subtitle. My subtitle was Grace Outside My Window. So a couple months ago, Lori and myself needed to get away for a couple days, so we went to this mineral spring place. And at this place, there was a little gift shop thing, and we went in there, and they had wind chimes. And I like wind chimes. And I've been meaning to buy some over the past couple of years. I never have. So they had a display. And so I walk over there, and I'm, I'm ringing these, these chimes. And what started to really intrigue me was I would ring a chime, and I would not like it. And then it had a name of the chimes. They all had a specific name. So when you got a box off the shelf below, you would get the right one. So I would ring this, this wind chime, and it would be very harsh and clanging, and it was called, you know, Purple Dragon. Um, and then I would, I would ring another one, and it sounded really, really Baroque, and it's called, you know, Medieval Knights or something. And I'm ringing all these chimes. I just, I, I just, nothing resonated with me. But then almost near the end, all was trying them all, I rang this one, and it was very melodic, and it was very nice. I'm thinking, wow. And I look at the name, believe it or not, the name of this chime was Amazing Grace. And I thought, well, why is that? And, and I get the box, and I'm looking at it, and I'm reading the back of it, and this wind chime is tuned so that the seven chimes are the first seven distinct notes in the hymn Amazing Grace. So if you were to hit those chimes in the right sequence, you're going to hear the first seven distinct notes of Amazing Grace. So I thought, I'm going to buy this one. <laughs> So we go home, and I installed this wind chime right outside my window. I mean, it would be like right on this board here. And my office is on the inside, and so I can hear this wind chime from inside the house. And you know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking, God, you know what would be really cool, since you're sovereign, and since there's no shortage of wind in Tracy? I'm thinking... It'd be really cool if you brought a breeze down through this corridor on my side yard and play Amazing Grace for me. That would be so cool. And God, you can do it. You've got the power. The reality is, sometimes I hear nothing. Sometimes I hear the notes, but they're in random order. I cannot piece it together. Sometimes I hear the notes for just a few seconds. Sometimes I hear the notes for a long period of time. What I want to hear is that perfect succession of the right notes to hear amazing grace. Is that not like our life, where grace is always that close? And we want to hear that spiritual, symmetrical picture, that that whole symphony. And there's nothing unexpected. There's nothing jarring or jangling. 
It's all just grace. All the while, grace is right outside my window, and I cannot perceive it the way I want to perceive it today. Now, maybe someday God is going to do it. I'm still listening, right? (laughs) But oftentimes, our question, why God, it's going to be like those wind chimes. We're not going to hear it the way we want to hear it. God is still there. He's a faithful creator. Well, let's close our study with the word of prayer. Father, Here we are. Behold how little faith we often have asking that question, why God? And Lord, it's not that we don't trust you. Who can we go to except the Lord? But the littleness of our faith, the weakness of our our flesh and our body, Mm -hmm. our mind, we just want to make sure everything will be okay. And we know from your word that it will be. Father, help us to trust more. Help us to walk in your light. Lord, help us to believe to the fullest extent possible we humanly can by your grace that we might be to your praise and to your glory. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the fellowship of the saints. Thank you for the worship of you. Truly a blessed day in your house. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.